1: And welcome to Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Dr Kat Jarman. In 991, a battle took place in England that sent shockwaves through the kingdom. The Battle of Malden was fought during the reign of English king Æthelred the Unready by an East Saxon force against an army of Scandinavians. Although the exact site of the battle has never quite been discovered, uniquely for this period, it's described in a number of written sources, not least an Old English poem. And that poem gives us not just an extraordinary insight into an early medieval battle but also into the lives, minds and society of those who fought it. To talk about the Battle of Malden today I'm delighted to have with me Dr Mark Atherton who is a senior college lecturer in the Faculty of English at Regent's Park College at the University of Oxford. He's the author of the book The Battle of Malden: War and Peace in 10th Century England. Welcome to Gone Medieval, Mark.
2: Thank you very much. Very pleased to be able to join you today.
1: First of all, the sort of big question I wanted to ask you was, why exactly was this particular battle so important?
2: England, in the previous few decades, had come together as a country, for the first time, really. It all started with King Athelstan a couple of generations back, and he defeated the Vikings and the Scots. The Battle of Brunnenburg. And then two generations later, we get King Edgar coming to the throne. He was a very powerful king, and he's the first king to be king of England without having to fight a battle. He was called Edgar the Peaceable. So Edgar the Peaceable, maybe he wasn't so peaceable as a personality, but he certainly kept the kingdom together for the first time. And then he suddenly, at the height of his powers, he died. They had two sons, half-brothers. They were rivals for the throne. One of them ended up being murdered. And Athelred the unready, came to the throne. And smoke signals or something went across to Scandinavia. And the Vikings, who had been more or less away from England, apart from those who'd settled there, so Viking invaders started returning. And it got more serious. Suddenly they wanted large sums of money in order to be paid to go away. Perhaps they wanted to conquer the country. They came in huge numbers, and it looked like Scandinavia was interested in taking over England, this new, prosperous, united country, which had a kind of civil service, taxation, trade, all sorts of advantages that would make it attractive to a foreign invader. So I think this battle is important because it's the first big battle in these Anglo-Scandinavian wars which went on through the 990s right through until 1016 when we got a Danish king on the throne at the end of these wars. King Canute, famous for allegedly trying to hold back the waves of the sea, but he probably didn't do that, not quite in the way they said. So this battle was, as you say, a big shock and important probably for that reason. And also what's interesting is that we have various sources for this battle and this particular poem, which goes into detail because people didn't keep diaries. There were no newspapers. There are chronicles. There are land transactions, documents of that kind, wills. There are occasional poems written about current events. But there's a lot of detective work involved. And sometimes it's simply, there was a battle in this year and that's all we know. But in this case, we have a poem in the language of the time, which goes into detail, which has characters, which has dialogue, mm. which has attitudes and evaluation of the behavior of the people involved. So that is one of our major sources. That's the interest, I think, for the Battle of Molden as a poem. And people study it in history departments, in universities but they also regard it as one of the canonical texts of early English literature as well. So it's studied in English departments as well by those universities that teach Old English and medieval studies.
1: And Do we know the date of it, when it was written down? We
2: don't know for sure when it was written down because the original manuscript was burnt in a fire in the 18th century, the one which charred the edges of another famous poem, Beowulf, but Beowulf survived and the Battle of Maldon was burnt to cinders. But someone had made a copy, so we have a copy of it. But people think it was perhaps written down about the year 1000. We're not so sure. Most people would agree that it's a fairly recent appraisal of what happened in the year 991. Some people put it a little bit later, 20 years later, in which case it's a memory of what happened.
1: And do we know anything about who wrote it?
2: We don't really have very many names of poets in Anglo-Saxon England. If you wrote a chronicle in Latin, it's a possibility that your name would be recorded. So the most famous historian and chronicler was Bede in the 700s. There was someone writing a chronicle in the 10th century as well in Latin, and his name is also recorded. But people who wrote saints' lives as well, or lives of famous men of the period, sometimes women, their names get recorded. But the poets tend to remain anonymous, so we're not sure. You could guess that he might have been someone attached to a large household of the nobility or the royal court, perhaps. Or he might have been ecclesiastical, he might have been a monk, because the monasteries were hugely important in this period centres of learning, a bit like the universities today, and also they helped with the administration of the country. Because the country, it wasn't 100% literate, we can guess maybe 10% or something like that. So the majority of people couldn't
1: read or write, and the
2: church, the cathedrals and the monasteries would have helped to run the country.
1: So let's get to the contents of the poem now. Can you give us a bit of a summary of the actual battle? What does the poem say the sequence of events are in this battle?
2: Okay, I think I'm going to start with a summary that you can read elsewhere, and then I'll show you what the poem did with the same story. So in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, in the oldest version of it, it basically says that the Vikings were raiding the east coast of England, because Malden is situated in Essex up one of the various estuaries that you can sail up in ships on the east coast of England. So they're good places for invading England. If you don't want to go up the Thames, you might go up the Blackwater to Malden, or you might go up the next estuary, up to Ipswich. And that's exactly what a large fleet of Viking ships did. They went to Sandwich first, and then they went up the coast, sailed up the estuary to Ipswich, and they sacked Ipswich and no doubt got lots of coins and money from the trading place at Ipswich. And then they decided, after all, to go up the Blackwater. So they went down southwards a little bit towards Malden, and the alderman, the governor or prince of the region, with his forces met them there, and they had a battle, and the alderman was killed. And after that, someone added a little bit more to the chronicle in a different handwriting, and this person wrote... And after that, Archbishop Sirich gave the advice that they should pay the Vikings a lot of money so that they would go away. This happened, and in fact, the leader of the Vikings, according to this account, seems to have then converted to Christianity and agreed to go away and not return. And so from that point of view, paying off the Vikings was successful. We think it might have been a man called Olaf Tryggvason, or that's one possible account. He went off to Norway and became king of Norway after having led probably a fleet of Danish Vikings, it seems. But the details are lacking. Anyway, that's the anglo saxon Chronicle, and that's all we get. So that's possibly all that would have happened if we hadn't copied this poem in the 18th century. Someone hadn't copied this poem. We wouldn't know the other details. So basically, we have in this poem details of a preparation for battle. It starts one page in. It looks like the first page has been lost, and we get a mention of the same leader of these Saxon forces. His name is Beornoth. Ah, so that's a bit of a clue. You can guess that it must be a story of Malden. He's gathering his men together. He's telling them how to stand and hold the line. He orders them to send the horses back into the forest. A young man is given a little cameo. He sends his hawk flying off into the forest behind the lines because he knows that the earl or the alderman Bertnoth won't stand for any nonsense and he's got to show that he really means business. So he sends his falcon, and I suppose like an image of peaceful activity, hunting with hawks was something that the Anglo-Saxon nobility and the European nobility enjoyed doing. So he gets rid of his hawk because he's ready to fight. And then we have a description of the Viking army and the East Saxon army facing each other off across the water. They're divided by a stretch of tidal water And the Vikings are on one side and the East Saxons are on the other. And there is a kind of parley. And the Viking messenger shouts across to Byrnoth, If you give us tribute, we will leave you in peace and go off with the money. And won't that be better for everybody concerned? And Byrnoth angrily refuses. The tide starts to go out and it reveals a causeway or a bridge which had been covered by the water. It must, in my opinion, have been fairly narrow because then Bithnoth orders one of his great warriors, Wolfstan is his name, with two companions to go out onto this bridge or causeway and hold back the enemy as they try to cross. And they are very successful. The Vikings can't get across the bridge to the mainland. So they have another parley, and the poem is a little bit vague at this point. It says something which seems to be the Vikings were deceitful. Anyway, they ask, please give us leave to cross the causeway, and then we can have a proper fight. And Birnoth must be an English gentleman or something, or a cricket player, because he agrees to this. They line up for battle, and in the initial stages of the battle, we have a detailed description of the hand-to-hand fighting, and Beirhtnoth is killed. He fights bravely and dispatches several Viking warriors, but he's killed. And as he dies, he prays a prayer. And that is the end of the Saxon Alderman. This is the crucial moment. Some people see that he has fallen. And one of the three brothers, who seem to be part of the retinue, part of the household troops, steal his horse which is the only horse left on the battlefield, as they'd sent all the horses back to the forest at the beginning. And they escape. Quite a few other people see them doing this. And because he's riding Birnoth's horse, they think that the leader is running away from the battlefield. And so quite a lot of the ordinary troops also leave the battlefield. And that leaves a group of men. Most of them seem to be from the household retinue of Birnoth, his private troops, if you like. And we have a series of, it's rather stylized at this point. Each of the warriors remaining has a speech to deliver about bravery, about loyalty, about kindred and these kind of things. And then there's a little bit more description of fighting. And there's a famous speech about fortitude in time of hardship by an old warrior. And shortly after that, the last page of the poem seems to be missing. And so we don't know exactly what happened according to this poet but we know from the chronicle and other sources that they seem to have lost them but it looks like that's the way it was going in the poem as well what's different of course is the dialogue the characters the arguments the conflicts and um, the emotions the feeling the experience of being in a situation like that which of course is not there in the very sparse description that we get in the chronicle so that's essentially an account of the poem and what happens in the poem.
1: And that's really fantastic. I want to get into some of those things again in a moment. But one of the things that really strikes me is it seems to say a lot about strategies and roles and the different people involved. And in your book as well, you talk about this quite a lot about you know how this army is put together and what roles the different people have there. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: This is the interesting thing. It seems that since the days of King Alfred, who might be regarded as the father of the dynasty, of the Wessex and dynasty, which were now ruling England. So Athelred was descended from Alfred the Great, who was a king of Wessex, who had resisted the Vikings 100 years before. Since the days of King Alfred then, there'd been a kind of standing army. Um, so the ordinary farmers and the fishermen and the rural population of England, those who owned some land or held some land, had a duty to fight when needed in these sort of standing army. The various princely governors, the aldermen and the earls, who governed the country under the king, So there's one for Wessex, and there's one for Essex, there's one for Northumbria, and so on. Birthnoth, then, is an important... I like to call him a prince because they really are almost at the level of royalty underneath the king, and they're the rulers. And they have under them a set of landowners known as thanes, and they're a bit like the knights of later medieval times. And they own land, and they have their own men as well. And so we have to imagine that Birnoth has his own household troops, his own household, which he would travel around with as well. And they would be professionals as well. So when it came to fighting and war, they knew what to do. And so we have this mixture then between the levies, who are known as the the fyrd, the defence force, you might want to call it, and then the non-professionals. And then we have the household retinues that are well-trained, And so we have members of the household retinue, and we can actually identify one or two of these men in the documents of the period. On top of that, it seems like there are visitors. at Birnoff's court. He's not the king, but he has his own court, if you like. And so there's a Northumbrian hostage, and there's someone from Mercia. So people from different parts of the country of England are present at Birthnos Court. So it seems like he's a unifying force. He's got various people from different parts of England. And England hasn't been a country for very long. And the Northumbrians and Northerners general feel a bit different to Southerners and must have felt even more so in those days. So we get characters like that. We also get a mention of a simple landowner who lives on the River Stour on the border between Essex and Suffolk. And we get to mention our simple pet. And these people are all given a little cameo speech or a little cameo scene. And so we get to see a kind of microcosm of the men of England. Not much mention of women, of course, this is a battle poem, but there is mention of going home and you can explore the background. So it's really thinking about the Thanes and the peasants and the landowners who all seem to be part of this army and have their own little cameo scenes within the poem.
1: I really like that because I normally work on this period from archaeology, and of course, that sort of thing is something that we can never really grasp from the material record, really. So this really fills in a in quite in a significant gap, doesn't it, I think, in what we know.
2: Yeah, I think so, yeah. And if you then combine it with, say, in the tenth century in this period, we also get more documents starting to appear. In English. So people who maybe didn't even know Latin, but were members of the nobility could write their own last will or have it written in English and have a record of their attitudes to their relatives, their attitudes to land and the church and so on. So we have the will of Pythnos' wife, her sister and their father so his father-in-law so we get a sense of the kind of lands that they owned in east anglia in the east anglian region and sometimes even a little bit about their attitudes to various people so his sister-in-law was very keen that all the slaves should be freed when she died. His wife was very keen that his gifts that he had made to the various churches should be recorded. And we know from other sources that Beirthnoth was a great supporter of the monasteries, and especially Ely Abbey, now Ely Cathedral, of course, and the Abbey at Ramsey. So we get a sense that this was a man who had a pious side to his character as well. And then we get the character Alfwinner, and we can trace his father and his uncles through the records. And it seems like Alfwinner's grandfather was a well-known alderman in Mercia in the central region of England. Alfwinner's father had got into trouble with King Athelred. Now, Athelred kept changing his views. And obviously this princely governor had disagreed with this young king, who rather impetuously had him condemned for treason. So Alfwiner is fighting for Birthnoth, fighting for Athelred's England, but his father had been sent into exile and had left the country. And it seems that like Birthnoth had nevertheless taken in this Alfwiner, who was some distant relative as well, and given him shelter at his court despite what the king had decreed for his father. So Winner is talking then about his family connections in Mercia, the fact that he's not an East Saxon but a Mercian, that Birthnoth was not only his lord, but also his friend and his kinsman. So these three sects of loyalty, lordship, friendship and kindred, are very important and giving us an insight perhaps into the kinds of attitudes that, that people had at the time.
0: Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War. Visit Chief Poeton as he prepares for war with English colonists. Tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser-known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. PlushCare.com slash weightloss.
1: Mark, you talk more about sort of kinship and family group as well and how that was sort of such a, a significant part within these armies.
2: Families were a bit like clans, really, or tribal affiliation. Kindred were supposed to support each other legally and vouch for them. So that was one bond of society. The other one, of course, was lordship. You were supposed to have a lord. You couldn't just run around as a freeman without having some particular allegiance to one of the great men of the country, so one of the aldermen. So if you were lordless, you were basically without any legal protection. You needed to have a lord of some kind. And sometimes people even had two lords. They had a lord from whom they held land and a lord to whom they'd sworn loyalty as well. So they had two big, great men to protect them, if you like. And what's interesting in the way the poem is set up is it doesn't mention the names of the Vikings at all. And when it does mention their ranks, they're just peasants or small landowners. And the Vikings are the ones who want land. And the English are protecting their land against these lordless men who've come across in boats and they're trying to get land from them, achieve land and achieve status. So that's the way the poem rather subjectively presents the enemy. And that's not always the case. In other battle poems, the enemy, if it is the Vikings, are named and identified. And in the chronicle accounts of the period we hear, the names of the various invaders so this seems to be a deliberate ploy on the part of the poets of the Battle of Maldon.
1: That's such an interesting point, because actually what happens very soon after, I mean, this is more or less one of the first times that this sort of big payoff and paying them to go away, this is when that really, really begins. And it's something for Ethelred that ends up being a huge problem and not really a great strategy in the end. So I guess that is one of the things that is trying to make a statement about then, is it, do you think, this poem? Is it sort of giving a sort of judgment, I suppose, on whether or not that was a good idea?
2: The message of the poem is that you shouldn't pay off the Vikings, that you should be courageous, it seems. Whereas the message of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was that it can be advisable sometimes because then they might convert to Christianity and go off and become king of Norway and leave us in peace, at least for a few years anyway. It's hard to know because it's a poem about a defeat. They were defeated. They decided to fight. They decided to resist the Vikings. And in fact, it looks like they're going to be defeated by the end of the poem. It doesn't say we are English and this is our nation, but it does say we're defending King Athelred's country against invaders. It's justifying a war of defense, if you like. And it seems to be saying that paying tribute to Vikings is not going to work. That seems to be the message of the poem, but not the message that we get from other documents at the time. And this question of whether anybody else is being criticised in the poem is also an interesting one. So obviously the three brothers who run away when Birnoth is killed and steal Birnoth's horse, they are criticised for their lack of loyalty by the poet himself or the narrator of the poem. And the men within the poem also seem to be saying that they were cowards as well. So there are two ways of criticising them. Was it lack of loyalty or was it also cowardice as well? So there's that. And Birnoth himself, is just for a moment, just briefly, he's mostly a positive character in this poem, but just briefly, the poet says, because of his overmode, and this is an Old English word, and it seems to mean someone who has overmuch mood. and mood means courage or mind, but it's also used in religious documents to mean having pride, and pride is a sin. So is he guilty of the sin of pride? Is this a story of pride before a fall? If it is, then it all centers on that one word, and that seems to be rather a lot to pin just on one word. I didn't go into this too much in my book because this problem of overmode keeps being discussed back and forth. What I wanted to do in the book more was to look generally at how the man is presented and how he's presented in other sources as well. And all the other sources seem to show that he was regarded in a very positive way, as a great leader, as someone who inspired loyalty, but also as a supporter of the church. And the monasteries were very important, as I say, in the government of the country in this period.
1: Now, one thing that I always wonder when we've got a source like this, obviously it is quite unusual in that we have, as you so well explained, so much information because we have this very lengthy poem. Do you think that... The importance of this particular battle has sort of been exaggerated a little bit by historians or you know, by people later on because we have so much information about it. Or do you think it genuinely was impactful and significant in that way?
2: If you look at a source I haven't mentioned yet, which is the life of St. Oswald. Bishop Oswald was the Bishop of Worcester in this period, and he had a lot of contacts in East Anglia with Athelwina, who was just north of Essex in East Anglia, and a friend of Beirthnoth. And both Athelwina and Beirthnoth were supporters of the monastic role in government, supporters of the monasteries, supporters of, presumably, of the monastic culture and education that you could get through the monasteries. And we know the name of the author of The Life of St. Oswald. His name was Birchtfeth. He was a writer in this period based at Ramsey Abbey. In Birchtfeth's Life of St. Oswald, Battle of Maldon is mentioned. And so this is another indicator, if you like, as well as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which also mentions this battle, that this was the first important battle in the wars against the Scandinavian invaders. So it looks to me that, although we don't get a lot of detail, that it was an important battle and that Bithnoth was the last of the old guard, if you like. The country is going to get new people governing it soon, under the king, of course. And people must have been shocked when he was killed because he'd had a successful political career for several decades One or two historians have gone the other way. Well, I've even read one or two writers who've said that the Battle of Maldon wasn't really very important and the poem itself is not particularly well written. I don't think literary critics would agree with that. It is well written in its own way. It's very carefully constructed and crafted. The command of the poetic language is high in this poet. He has interesting turns of phrase and ways of indicating character and attitudes and behaviour and so on. So it's definitely worth reading as a poem, and sometimes English students read it without realising that it's actually a story about an event that actually happened. That's the other side of the divide between history and English. I think it is important, and it's a shame that we don't have more detailed accounts of later battles. When King Canute fought at the Battle of Assandun, and later he dedicated a church to commemorate his victory and his becoming King of England. We don't have a long account of the Battle of Asundun. So we don't know much about the characters involved. On the English side, there was Edmund Ironside, the son of Athelred the Unready. It would be interesting to know more about their attitudes, as presented in a poem, of course, or in some more detailed account. But we don't have those. We just have the bare facts as they're presented in these rather sparse records, such as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and other sources. So I still think it's an important poem because the idea that an important statesman fell in this battle—it had repercussions, possibly even for the history of Norway. This sounds like it was an important battle to me.
1: I would absolutely agree. <laughs> I think, as you've very well explained, as well, you know, all those things that I can tell us about that whole society that this was part of. So not just the historical narrative, but also. The society and the people, the individuals, you know, the experiences that they had. Mark, thank you so much for joining me and sharing all of this.
2: You are very welcome.
1: So if people want to know more about the Battle of Malden, I would absolutely recommend Mark's book. It's called The Battle of Malden: War and Peace in Tenth Century England. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Gone Medieval from History Hit. Don't forget, if you want more medieval information in your life, you can subscribe to our Medieval Mondays newsletter. Just look in the episode notes wherever you found this podcast to find out how. My co-host, Matt Lewis, will be back with another episode on Saturday, and I'll be back next Tuesday, and I hope you'll join me again then. Thank you all for listening. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first 3 months for just 1 pound a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.